I'm just about to take off from Russia's northern Arctic town of Salahard uh, to look at the effects of global warming on a community of reindeer herders who live here in one of the most remote and sparsely populated regions on Earth. Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Wednesday, the 21st of October. Today, the Lib Dems' Chris Hune explains why he'll be joining BBC's Question Time panel tomorrow alongside the BNP leader Nick Griffin. It would be frankly absurd uh, for the most authoritarian, intolerant, immoderate, extremist party to go unchallenged. A rerun election in Afghanistan, but will it be any less fraudulent than the last one? The Taliban did win an enormous propaganda coup. Just the low turnout has um, questioned the credibility and legitimacy of this election. And how global warming is affecting the far north of Russia. Reindeer are starving and lakes are disappearing. Temperature of permafrost rose uh, for about one degree, which is quite crucial for the Arctic. And uh, this process uh, becoming more faster, more quicker, uh, more often. First, here's Bill Overton with the headlines and a look at the papers. Britain's mass swine flu vaccination programme begins today as the first people identified as priorities are given jabs. Seriously ill hospital patients and health staff will be first in line, while pregnant women will be invited to come forward next week. The Department of Health says patients will be contacted by their GPs if they fall into one of the at-risk categories. So far there have been 108 swine flu-related deaths across the UK. Banks should be split up to separate risky ventures from their core business, according to the Governor of the Bank of England. Mervyn King's told business leaders in Edinburgh the British people will pay the cost of the financial crisis for a generation. He said banks had to fundamentally change and tougher regulation alone will not avert another crisis. George Osborne, the shadow chancellor, called King's speech powerful and persuasive. Meanwhile, the Centre for Economics and Business Research said bank bonus payouts would hit £6 billion this year. That's up 50% on last year. Downing Street's played down a suggestion today. Gordon Brown's planning to offer MPs a pay rise to see off a backbench rebellion over expenses. Responding to a report in the Daily Telegraph, a Downing Street source said last night, we do not recognise the suggestion the Prime Minister is advocating any specific proposals. An MP's basic salary is currently just over £64,000, but ministers earn upwards of £96,000. Tens of thousands of disaffected Anglicans could become Roman Catholics following a decree made today by Pope Benedict. It comes after years of approaches to the Vatican from Anglicans, unhappy with the ordination of women and gay priests. The Pope's initiative allows Anglicans worldwide to convert en masse while still maintaining part of their spiritual heritage. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, apologised to bishops for not warning them. He said he hadn't known about the decree until a fortnight ago. In football, Liverpool's string of bad results continued in the Champions League last night. They lost 2-1 at home to Lyon. The defeat was their fourth in a row and piles further pressure on manager Rafa Benitez. In last night's other matches, Arsenal drew one all to stay top of their group while Rangers were thrashed 4-1. Now for a look at today's papers, starting with The Independent, which leads with that speech by the Bank of England Governor Mervyn King. Never has so much money been owed by so many to so few, is its Churchillian headline. 
The FT leads on the same story, while the Telegraph claims families face a 7p increase in income tax if Britain's books are to be balanced. The Guardian splashes with news Hillary Clinton set to raise the issue of the Conservatives' far-right allies in the European Parliament when she meets with William Hague tomorrow. Defence chiefs are preparing to charter extra aircraft to ensure Christmas gifts beat the postal strike and reach troops in Afghanistan. That's according to a report in this morning's Sun. Meanwhile, the Mirror's political editor, Kevin Maguire, says he has the solution to this week's proposed strikes. Sack the Royal Mail chief executive, Adam Crozier, who earns 71 times the wage of a postie. The Mail, those concerned temporary staff brought in by Royal Mail, haven't had their references checked or been vetted for criminal records and they'll receive just the minimum wage for their work. There's more news and sport throughout the day at guardian.co.uk. The BBC's decision to invite the leader of the far-right British National Party onto the flagship political TV show Question Time has attracted a lot of criticism. But in the end, all three main parties have decided to join tomorrow's debate with Nick Griffin. Jack Straw will be there for Labour with the Tory peer Saeed Awasi and the black American writer Bonnie Greer. The Liberal Democrats' Home Affairs spokesman Chris Hewn is also taking part. He says the BBC Trust shouldn't attempt to veto Griffin's appearance. Well, I looked carefully at the case that Peter Hayne was making, and I say I have to say I was not persuaded by that. I think that the uh, BBC has to uh, be in a position where it's completely impartial, and when a party passes a certain threshold, in this case electing two members of the European Parliament, uh, then uh, in line with past precedent from UKIP and the Greens, um, it gets a certain play on broadcast media, including getting invited onto question time. And I think that Peter Hayne is saying, look, they have not yet cleared up uh, their membership criteria in line with the last week's court judgment, which found that they couldn't discriminate against uh, black and Asian British citizens. Um, uh, but frankly, I thought that was a bizarre court case in any case. I don't know why any black or Asian person would want to join a racist organization which was aiming to get them out of the country. Uh, and I think that if we were to go down the road that Peter Hayne is suggesting, it would look as if we were attempting to gerrymander um, a debate. And I think it would merely create more sympathy for the BMP, putting everybody else in uh, the position of trying to stop them getting their points across in an unfair way. The right thing to do is to appear on the programme and to try and make clear exactly what the differences are. Will the question time format with a studio audience uh, favouring sound bites, will that allow you to, to pick Griffin's arguments apart? Well, I think that there, it, it, it always depends on the context. Clearly, it's not as easy to pick apart an argument in the question time format as it is, for example, if uh, you're being interviewed by Jeremy Paxman or John Humphreys or whoever it happens to be. Um, but I still think it is possible to interject, and I still think it is possible to see how uh, the party puts across uh, some of its ideas. And I think that when people see some of the crazy things, frankly, that the BMP is uh, advocating, they're going to think, well, perhaps this is not the party that we ought to be uh, supporting. This genuinely is an extremist party in the tradition of the National Front, and before that, the British Union of Fascists and Sir Oswald Mosley. And 
I just don't think it's uh, a party that most British people would want to have any truck with. How will you respond if Griffin says something on a subject that's not about racism or immigration, something that you agree with? Well, I think that uh, clearly um, it is the case that we don't disagree on everything uh, in in exactly the same way as I believe it's the case that human beings uh, share 96% of their DNA with uh, chimpanzees, but that doesn't make me a chimpanzee. <laughs> uh, and I think that um, it, it would be a, quite astonishing uh, if um, Griffin were to be able to get through a whole hour of television without saying something uh, which was of general, uh, something that was generally sensible. Uh, but I think the key point is to come back to the really fundamental issues where He is clearly at odds, by the way, often with most of his own supporters. Chris Hewn, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Also on the Guardian's website today. My name's Damien Carrington. I'm head of environment. Uh, Today we have the third part of our nuclear series looking at the options for Britain uh, in nuclear power. Uh, Today we're looking at the nuclear police force, which very few people know about. 750 heavily armed officers paid for completely by the nuclear industry. We're also taking an in-depth look at the safety issues around nuclear uh, power, which have obviously undermined its uh, clean image over many years. Uh, And we're also asking the question, is nuclear power actually green and sustainable? You can read more about that on the site. It's www.guardian.co.uk slash environment. Another election campaign in Afghanistan after President Hamid Karzai accepts that August's poll was marred by widespread fraud. A panel of election monitors reluctantly accepted that the last poll, which Karzai was declared to have won, was in fact invalid. The US Senator John Kerry was in Kabul to help broker a deal. President Karzai himself had serious questions about the process. But today, he showed statesmanship by deciding to move forward and to strengthen the country by embracing the Constitution and the rule of law. Well, now the runoff vote between Karzai and his main challenger, Abdullah Abdullah, will be held on the 7th of November. John Boone reports from Kabul. The issue of massive electoral fraud was actually completely glossed over, both by the Afghan president himself and also by Senator John Kerry uh, and Kai Aidi, the um, head of the UN mission in Afghanistan. No one chose to dwell on the fact that the only reason this election is going to a second round is because of the massive electoral fraud perpetrated on the behalf of Mr. Karzai by some of his supporters. Instead, they're focusing much more on moving the process forward. There was a lot of talk about this being um, an important step for the democratization of Afghanistan. Um, And indeed, Mr. Karzai was even praised um, for statesmanlike behavior, um, both by Gordon Brown uh, and also President Sarkozy, with plenty of other warm words flowing in from other world leaders. It looks like, you know, there was some sort of deal where Karzai would would get uh, praised by people like John Kerry and uh, he would be able to, you know, look statesmanlike uh, while having to commit a U-turn. A deal was indeed struck late on Sunday night after hours of torturous negotiations and discussions between Mr Karzai and his people and Senator Kerry and other other key Western figures, um, including uh, the British and American ambassadors, as well as many other people on the phone from uh, from capitals around the world, urging Mr. Karzai 
or, well, frankly, telling him that he really had no choice um, but to accept the findings of the Electoral Complaints Commission. That's the uh, independent UN-backed watchdog that uncovered so much of this evidence of, of, of massive and widespread fraud. And essentially, the, these Western leaders were saying, um, you cannot continue uh, threatening to ignore the, the electoral law. Um, this uh, brinkmanship is extremely reckless. And if you go through with your threat of refusing to accept those results, we will no longer back you. Now, that was is, is about as um, uh, hard as diplomacy gets, and it seems to have done the trick. But in return for Mr. Karzai um, making that agreement, um, it was uh, made clear to him that um, in yesterday's announcements, there'd be lots of focusing on uh, Mr. Karzai's uh, statesman-like behaviour. What's the guarantee, John, that a second round of voting will be um, any less fraudulent than the first? We have absolutely no guarantee of that at the moment. Uh, almost nothing has been done to reform the Independent Election Commission. That's the Afghan body that's run this election and is widely seen as being partisan to Mr. Karzai. Thus far, only four officials from that organisation have been fired um, for uh, involvement in fraud, and all of those have been at uh, a rather local level, and some of them for rather trivial offences. Um, with just two weeks to go, it seems very difficult uh, to, to see how it's possible for that organisation to be reformed in time. John Boone. I'm John Dennis. Still to come on Guardian Daily, HIV experts expressed doubts about an AIDS vaccine that was hailed as a breakthrough. And what's going to happen now is that the scientists will pore over all the results they've got until they find out or at least get some clues to why they've got the positive results that they have. But first, Labour, the Conservatives and the Lib Dems, the conferences of all three main parties, put off more voters than they attracted. And the vast majority of people think it's fair to retrospectively penalise MPs for their past expenses claims. Julian Glover has the details of the latest Guardian ICM poll. It's good news in that nothing's really changed. Each poll, really, before the general election, Labour and the Tories be anxiously looking to see if there's a shift, if that breakthrough has come for Labour and they're recovering, or if the Tories have strengthened and really gone into a lead that nobody can, can challenge. Well, nothing too much has shifted. The Tory lead is 17 points. If that happens on polling day, that would give them a majority of 100. That's pretty huge. So they'll be pleased nothing has changed. Labour's up one point to 27, a bit below 30, which will depress them, because I think they've been hoping the conferences have pushed them up to about 30. Tories on 44, that's really quite solid. That's one point lower than the record ICM score for David Cameron, highest we've had in a Guardian poll nearly all year, I think highest since January. So no huge shift over the conferences. Maybe you could call it a draw, but it's a draw with the Tories having the advantage. A slight slip for the Lib Dems who didn't have a great conference. Yes, I mean, we mustn't overdo how much individual conferences affect the voters. It's, it's hard for anyone to really remember what happened at each, each conference. They, they go on for so long. But the sense of who's got the initiative, who's dominating the news. Well, the Lib Dems got edged out a bit. They got in the news for their mansion tax at the time, nothing much after that. They did have a boost in some polls just after the conference. Today, in this poll, they're on 18%. Not too bad, but one of the lower scores they've had this year, and they'll be saddened by that. How do voters um, see the party's handling of the economy? Well, it's interesting. There are really, I think, three issues in the news which could change things for Labour and the Conservatives. One is expenses, one's the economy, and the other is that idea of cuts and small government. And on each of these, the polls really offer some encouragement to the Conservatives. On the economy, the Tory team of George Osborne and David Cameron has 
extended its lead over Labour as the best party on the economy. I think the lead is now at a record. Tories are about 50% of people think they're OK on the economy. I think it's 49. Labour down in the low 30s on 31. That's a big gap and a huge shift from a year ago. Um, in the November poll last year, the Labour Party had a lead. So big change there. And that could determine the outcome of the election. Nothing could is expenses. Um, people think all MPs are terrible Over 80% think that MPs should pay back the money. They agree with the leg report. They don't want to hear all these MPs whining away. So no sympathy for MPs as a class. But ask about the specific parties and you find people are really hostile to Gordon Brown's handling of the expense crisis, quite positive about David Cameron's and pretty positive about Nick Clegg. So there is a sense of the big issues in the news breaking the Tories' way, but still not a lot of enthusiasm about politics. Do you think the Tories have come closer now to sealing the deal with the electorate? Well, that's a phrase people use, and no one really knows what it means until <laughs> election night, and then we'll see if they have or not. Um, they're very anxious, I think, still that they haven't. Definitely not an enthusiastic uh, public. They're not leaping up and down saying, I want a Tory government. I think what they're saying is, I want Gordon Brown to stop being Prime Minister. And that maybe goes to that third area I mentioned about cuts and small government. The Tory party could frighten voters. I think Labour was beginning in its conference season and at the end of the Tory one to get that message across, that there was a fear the Tory enthusiasm of small government go too far, threaten services people needed. Then, of course, this expense report came along and dominated the news for the last week. Bad news for Labour on that. But there is a worry amongst Conservatives, and maybe some indication in this poll, people do think the Conservatives are quite keen on cuts. They worry whether that might affect things they use. Now, 38% of people in the poll say they quite like Tory cuts. 28% say they think Labour's got it about right. So the Tories aren't losing on the issue, but there's not a lot of enthusiasm. There's not, as you say, not a sense they've sealed the deal. Julian Glover. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. The US Army tested a vaccine against HIV in Thailand. And last month, it hailed it as a breakthrough in efforts to prevent the spread of AIDS. But, as Sarah Bosley, The Guardian's health editor, reports from an AIDS vaccine conference in Paris, it's emerged that the vaccine won't protect those most at risk. Well, we've had the the full results. We we got the headlines um, last month. Now, this actually paints rather a different picture of the vaccine from the one we had before. Um, A lot of people got terribly excited about the prospect of any sort of AIDS vaccine last month. And now we're looking at um, the the full results, which suggest that it's not by any means um, a a really positive result. It's a modestly effective vaccine. It's not actually going to help those people who are at high risk of getting HIV at all. And by that, I mean commercial sex workers, for instance, and people who inject drugs. And those are the people who really do need protection more than anybody else. So it didn't work in that group. Also, in the first 12 months, it was more effective than it was later on. So it looks as though the effect might tail off. And the other thing is that although if you take everybody into account who actually started on on the vaccine or on placebo for that matter, who started the trial, those people, um, they they did find um, a 31% um, effectiveness in. But in fact, not all of them had all the shots. So if you remove, as you do in some analyses, remove those people who didn't have all the, vac- all, all the vaccine shots, you get down to 12,000 people rather than 16,000. And the result there was 26%, which is not considered statistically significant, which means in layman's terms that it could be down to chance. Does it offer a glimmer of hope at all? This is what everybody's so excited about. They really say, well, we know it's, it's only modestly protective. We can't say this is a big thing. 
we're actually quite sure that this vaccine won't go any further. It's not going to be taken into any further trials. It's not going to be um, uh, in any way um, used, probably. Um, but it is hopeful because they have proved just for once, just for the first time, that you can actually immunize people against HIV. That's really the message that they want to take home from this. And what's going to happen now is that the scientists will pour over all the results they've got, over all the data, all the samples, test them and test them again, until they, tr until they find out or at least get some clues to why they've got the positive result that they have. Sarah Bosley. One of the world's last great wildernesses is northwest Siberia. The Nenet people who live there depend on reindeer to survive but they're experiencing dramatic changes in the Arctic Circle's weather, as The Guardian's Luke Harding reports. We're now on our way to the uh, remote village of Yarsale, where the um, Nenets people live, who herd reindeer and who, whose lives have been, are being increasingly affected by global warming. The journey to reach them is amazing. To my right is the Og River, an Arctic river. It's a vast riverine delta stretching as far as you can see um, it goes into the Arctic Sea further north from here and this is a stunning view of tundra of um, scrubby green uh, emptiness really with uh, a whole series of um, beautiful mini lakes some of them round some of them are no bigger than puddles just stretching forever and in a moment we'll land and find out what the um, Nenets people think about their environment and how it's changing. So, I'm with Vladimir Chuprov, who's the energy unit head for Greenpeace Russia. Um, and he's going to explain a little bit, a bit about how climate change is really uh, affecting uh, the lives of the reindeer herders who live on the Yamal Peninsula and how it's... Um, impeding their movement and sort of changing their season so so vladimir what what what, what problems are the uh, reindeer herders facing so as you uh, correctly said that the main problem connected with the season change as these people live in the uh, in the ecosystem and feel this season change themselves like in russia we say uh, by their skin leather Okay, Vladimir, we'll leave it here because one of the um, reindeer herders' uh, wives has just come in and is making us a, a pot of tea. It's morning in the Nenets camp, day two. The dogs are up. I'm up. I've just been for a swim in a freezing tundra lake, which I have to say was one of the most uh, extreme experiences of my life. The um, reindeer herders are getting their wooden sleighs ready for the day. They're going to move on. Now, they normally spend only two or three days in one place before uh, <clears throat> going on to fresh pasture for their reindeer. Um, and they migrate up and down the Yamal Peninsula from the north to the south. And one of the problems is that because of global warming, their season has been shunted um, a month in the wrong direction so that they now have to wait uh, on the banks of the Ob River. Previously, uh, in November, they would be able to cross it to the south banks of the forest where they winter. But now they have to wait until December. And they say that one of the problems they're encountering is that it's snowing. They're getting these sort of unseasonal snowstorms in May when the reindeer are falling. And this is also very bad and makes it hard for them to move. 
Well, I'm looking out at the Kara Sea. This is really as far north as it goes. Um, and I've been talking to one of three Russian meteorologists who live here, um, Alexander Pavlovich. And he, um, rather interestingly, has said that he thinks that global warming is a myth uh, invented by people who spend too much time at home. Having said that, he did say some quite interesting things. The number of polar bears, he says, has been increasing. Uh, this year he's seen five. Previous years he's only seen one or two. And the other thing he said was that even though he doesn't believe in global warming, the temperatures are not as cold as they used to be. Um, in winter here, where you have hurricanes and gale force winds, it used to get as cold as about minus 48. And now he says typically it's about minus 30 to 35. But um, he's not worried at least. Luke Harding. Andy Duckworth and Phil Maynard were the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. And I'm John Dennis. Thanks for listening. Listener.